I'm Jesse. Let's have a devotion. Isaiah chapter 9. You're going to see a beautiful prophecy about Christ in this passage. That the government would be on his shoulders. Chapters 9 and 10 are an indictment for corrupt government, particularly in the context of theocratic ancient Judah, who was charged by God for looking after the poor and the oppressed and the needy. The government would be on the shoulders of the Messiah. And the Messiah is prophesied right here in this text. You're going to feel like it's Christmas time while we're reading Isaiah 9. Nevertheless, the gloom of the distressed land will not be like that of the former times when he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. Right? Zebulun and Naphtali, those are two of the tribes, uh, uh, to the tribes of Israel. But in the future, he will bring honor to the way of the sea, to the land east of the Jordan, and to Galilee of the nations. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. A light has dawned on those living in the land of darkness. You have enlarged the nation and increased its joy. The people have rejoiced before you as they rejoice at harvest time and as they rejoice when dividing spoils. Even chapter, even chapter 9 verse 2 itself sort of exhibits this chiastic structure. There are chiasms that come up around Isaiah often. Think of a chiastic structure like A, B, C, D, C, B, A. But the next time you see B and A, it's more like B prime and A prime. And then the permutation of the verbiage, the syntax will sort of shift in the second iteration. He does this often. And it's a, it's, a, it's a literary device. And it's not just frivolity. It's not just for the sake of beauty. It's inspired by God. There's a reason for it. And there's something chiastic even about the whole redemptive plan, isn't there? Uh, that we began in Eden and it was perfection. And that we end in heaven and it's perfection. And then you see things sort of come up the way that they were before. Uh, there, there's something chiastic even about the redemptive plan. And it's not quite the same at the end as it was in the beginning. Because in, there are, you know, countless more souls that exist in the heavenly future than the two who were in Eden alone. But this is a beautiful... This is a beautiful literary device that takes place throughout Isaiah that also runs sort of parallel to the overall redemptive plan. You have enlarged the nation and increased its joy. The people have rejoiced before you as they rejoice at harvest time and as they rejoice when dividing spoils. For you have shattered their oppressive yoke and the rod on their shoulders, the staff of their oppressor, just as you did on the day of Midian. Okay, in Midian, you had Gideon, the reluctant judge in the era of the judges. And God had to confirm with Gideon that he was with him. And uh, the Lord gave great victory. For every trampling boot of battle and the bloodied garments of war will be burned as fuel for the fire. For a child will be born for us, a son will be given to us, and the government will be on his shoulders. He will be named Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. See, Merry Christmas. The dominion will be vast, and its prosperity will never end. He will reign on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and sustain it with justice and righteousness from now on and forever. The zeal of the Lord of armies will accomplish this. This passage is exquisite, and you can see how Isaiah's audience moves beyond the scope of the original leadership of Judah to make prophecies about the Messiah to come though the one savior the world will ever get. That the government will be on his shoulders speaks to the eternal justice and it evokes thoughts about the governmental structure of heaven. 
I think of the governmental structure of heaven as a theocratic monarchy. I say monarchy because there's a throne described in Revelation. I say theocratic because it's God who's in charge. God on a throne. Theocratic monarchy. It's the only perfect governmental system because the king is actually perfect. Not the way that we idolize political leaders here who are imperfect sinners just like we are. This one's actually perfect. And his resources are limitless. Not like kings of old who would gain wealth by taxing their constituents, this one actually has limitless resources, and he's perfect in his character. That's why it's the only perfect governmental system, and it gives way to the only perfect economic system. Capitalism's great, but it has its downflaws. It has its, down, it has its, uh, has its, has its downsides. But in heaven, with a theocratic monarchy, a king who is actually perfect and who has limitless resources, it's a perfect governmental system, a perfect society, and a perfect economy. It's incredible. That's where we're headed. The government will be on his shoulders. Our Jewish friends use this passage in an accusatory fashion to say that Jesus is not the Messiah. And when they do this, they're committing the same classic metaphysical error that even the, even the disciples did right after the resurrection of Christ. To look strictly to the political interests of Israel alone in a given generation. This is a pitiful disservice to the actual scope of the covenant that God made with Abraham in Genesis 12, 15, 17, and 22. It was never just about the political interests of Israel at one time. It's about all nations for all time. So this is why his throne will never end. He's the one who will fulfill what was prophesied first through the birth of Solomon. Remember as Samuel was talking to David about his son who was born through Bathsheba after their first child died. This was a brutal passage. Uh, if you can see more about this in our, uh, at, at JCM's website and, and uh, Aiden's Hope, that's where we delved into these passages where David and Bathsheba's first child died, and this was because of discipline on his life for his sin. But they had another son after, and that would be Solomon. And the prophecies around Solomon, you could see, were beyond merely Solomon. Because Solomon, for one thing, would turn out to be a huge creep, uh, but he wasn't all bad. He had some good moments. He was the wisest man ever, the richest man ever, and God did use him to build the temple. He did accomplish some good things before he went completely off the rails. And even after he went off the rails in his jaded state, he inspired, uh, he had an Ecclesiastes inspired to him. And before he became a huge creep, he inspired Song of Songs, the most romantic book ever written. But the scope of the prophecies before Solomon's birth went way beyond anything that Solomon could do. That he would sit on the, thr the throne of David forever means that he's immortal. So obviously it can't just be Solomon, can't just be Shlomo. And he's named Wonderful Counselor. Nobody ever called Solomon that. All right, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. We can see how we are building on the, the throne of David in verse 7, the prophecies from 2 Samuel, but we're going beyond them in their scope. Jesus would refer to the Spirit as the counselor, confiding or uh, consoling his disciples, saying, it's better for you if I go away, because if I, go, if I don't go away, the, whole, the counselor won't come. This is about the Holy Spirit today. Mighty God. I mean, amen. We see that everywhere. Eternal Father. Okay, see the triune God manifest here. Prince of Peace. <clears throat> so this was accomplished by the zeal of the Lord of Armies. And this justice is established in his kingdom, see, uh, monarchy, <clears throat> and it's sustained with justice and righteousness forever. So the, the scope of these prophecies goes way beyond 
even the arrival time of the Messiah, which would come in about 700 years after these words were first inspired through Isaiah, this, the, the scope of this king and his reign, it's eternal. The text continues, The Lord sent a message against Jacob. It came against Israel. All the people, Ephraim and the inhabitants of Samaria, will know it. They will say with pride and arrogance, The bricks have fallen, but we will rebuild with cut stones. The sycamores have been cut down, but we will replace them with cedars. The Lord has raised up resin's adversaries against him and stirred up his enemies. Aram from the east and Philistia from the west have consumed Israel with open mouths. And all this, his anger has not turned away. His hand is still raised to strike. That's a theme that's going to come up over and over again in this passage. It's going to come up. Uh, it, it, it's first introduced here in verse 12, at least in this, in this passage. And it comes up again in verse 17. And it comes up again in verse 21. So things are brutal for Israel, but in all this, his anger is not turned away. His hand is still raised to strike. The people did not turn to him who struck them. They did not seek the Lord of armies. So the Lord cut off Israel's head and tail, palm branch and reed in a single day. The head is the elder, the honored one. The tail is the prophet, the one teaching lies. The leaders of the people misled them, and those they misled are swallowed up. Therefore, the Lord does not rejoice over Israel's young men and has no compassion on its fatherless and widows. For everyone is a godless evildoer and every mouth speaks folly. In all this, his anger has not turned away and his hand is still raised to strike. So he's going to deal with the corruption of the leadership, but even the people among them are going to be swept away in this. In the New Testament, Paul advises his protege, watch your life and doctrine closely because in so doing, you'll save both yourself and your hearers. When there's false doctrine in the teaching, it's going to affect the whole church. And when the church compromises the truth, the society around it will crumble. But God will not only deal with the corrupt teacher, the false teacher, this is actually the scariest words in Scripture are reserved for false teachers, but everyone who believes it goes along with it and exhibits evil of their own. You can't blame your own sin on your pastor, even if your pastor messes up. You're going to answer to God too. It's because he says even the fatherless and the widows, it says every one of them, they're godless evildoer too. So they also face wrath on their own. And in all of this, his anger is still not sated. It's not yet accomplished its purpose. Remember, the anger of God is not sadistic. It is just and it's purposeful and it abates when God wins as he always does. For wickedness burns like a fire that consumes thorns and briars. We saw this in, in chapter 7 verse 23 that he would turn the fields into briars, but even those briars are going to be consumed by fire. It kindles the forest thicket so that they go up in a column of smoke. The land is scorched, but the wrath of the Lord of armies and the people are like fuel for the fire. No one has compassion on his brother. They carve meat on the right, but they are still hungry. They have eaten on the left, but they are still not satisfied. Each one eats the flesh of his own arm. Manasseh is with Ephraim and Ephraim with Manasseh. Together both are against Judah and all this his anger has not turned away and his hand is still raised to strike. So in verses one through seven, it's a beautiful hope for the Messiah to come. And then verses 8 to the end of the chapter, it's bad news. All the way to, to verse 21, things are going to get worse. But in all this, he's still going to strike again. It gets worse. But he's still going to strike again. It's going to get worse. But his, in all this, his anger is still not turned away. And his hand is still raised to strike. Zoom out Isaiah wide. The first 39 chapters are like this. God is dealing with his own people, and he's dealing with the nations through whom he deals with his own people. And as bleak as things are, they seem to get bleaker. So look at verses 1 through 8 as all the more striking then. They shine all the brighter in their hope because the pericope, the text around them, is all the more bleak and heavy. God still has more to do to discipline his own nation, Israel. 
But there's a day coming. There's a king on his way. The government will be on his shoulders and he will be called the Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Eternal Father, the Prince of Peace. That's about Jesus. And it's 700 years before the birth of Christ. Even as God pours out his wrath and discipline upon his people, he always provides grace too. He did this in the flood. He'll do this in Revelation 11. He did it with Israel. And that mercy came through Jesus.